Hello folks, this is Jordan here with a quick announcement before we start today's episode. As you may have noticed, we are in the middle of the Christmas season and we are coming to a close with this particular series of the Elephant Feast. And so after that, I'm going to be taking some time off for the holidays to kind of work on some new ideas and uh, attend to my family as well. But here's a deal, folks. We are going to be coming back in the new year and we're going to have a great time. And I'm also looking for ways to talk back and forth. And so I want to uh, set up some avenues where we can begin a conversation. We can share ideas and thoughts and possibly work together to make a new episode. So be looking for that in the new year. And in the meantime, uh, please enjoy this last episode of the story arc of scripture when we talk about the falling action. Merry Christmas, everyone, and I'll see you in the new year. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Elephant Feast, where we are looking at the complexities of life, faith, and relationships one bite at a time. I am your host, Jordan Johnson, and you've been invited to the table. So take a seat and let's dig in. Welcome back, folks, to episode seven of our Story Arc of Scripture series, where we are finally getting to the falling action. For those of you who are just joining us, we are going through the story arc of scripture where we are looking at a literary device, a story arc, Freytag's Pyramid, and holding it up to the Bible to ask the question, does using a story arc help the Bible make more sense in how we engage with it and how it affects our lives? And if you've been with us this whole time, then you know, but I have flipped. I did the resolution last episode, and we're going to be finishing with the falling action because you and I, we are in the falling action right now. And we are also in the resolution. Neither one has reached completion. They are still kind of working themselves out. Um, But I think there's a lot of things that we can relate to in the falling action as we look at our own lives through a story arc lens. And we'll talk about that. We're going to have some fun today. We're going to be talking about the Avengers. We're going to be talking about jazz. We're going to be talking about improv. Um, So it's going to be a fun episode um, of these 40-minute long, 20-minute episodes. Okay, so (laughs) let's not waste time then. What is it? Why it's important? And where do we see it in the Bible? That's the That's our description for what we're doing. And so a falling action is, what is it? It's the basic plot structure um, that happens after the climax and before the resolution. This part of your story is often used to show the consequences of the climax and how it affects the characters. And then why it's important, the falling action sets up your ending so that you can close out all those loose ends and give the audience closure on what they've just experienced. This is the part where your audience gets to witness what happens after your climax occurs. And then finally, the following action lets the characters learn about themselves and how they've changed by experiencing their struggles throughout the story. This can help shape them into better versions of themselves or create change in their lives that wasn't possible before. As we've said, every story requires an audience. If you have no audience, the story does not exist. Because the goal of a story is not just to transfer information. The goal of a story is to move your audience onto their next step. And the falling action is where that moment, 
that momentum, that, that push, that drive, this is where it's going to fall hardest on your audience. Because when we get to the resolution, that's when they're kind of being released. They're, they're being released to go about their lives to practice the falling action. But the falling action, you still have a captive audience, in air quotes. Um, and, and this is where the real change begins to happen. And it's interesting when you read blogs and articles and, and books about the falling action, there's actually some folks out there that say you don't need a falling action. You go straight from climax into the resolution. That's all you need. And some people disagree with that. I disagree with that. Um, and because you have to have the falling action because there is a parallel with the falling action to the rising action. Um, there's a symmetry that happens. Um, and they work well together because they're supposed to work together. And so if you lose the falling action, then the rising action loses a lot of its own meaningful weight as well. Uh, so uh, the falling action and the rising action, they work together both to affect the tension and the conflict of the plot. They work together for the character development and they work together for the reader engagement. So, so as an example, uh, the rising action is increasing the tension and the conflict in the story and the falling action begins to resolve the conflict the rising action it enhances the character development you get to know the characters and the falling action begins to answer lingering questions as the characters are starting to kind of be rounded out and then um the rising action engages the reader and the falling action provides closure for the reader. So there is this kind of symmetry where they have to work together. Um, and, you know, just using a visual metaphor, you know, having two planks together is kind of a weight bearing structure that the climax can kind of sit upon and stuff like that. But, you know, the point is you need a falling action because it's helpful for the story, it's helpful for the audience and all around. So let's walk through the characteristics of the falling action. Uh, so number one, the falling action is going to show diminishing conflict, okay? So this is, uh, if you're looking at Lord of the Rings, this is after, sorry, spoiler alert, uh, the good guys win. And in Lord of the Rings, after the destruction of the ring uh, and the final banishment of Sauron, um, then you have the series of vignettes showing how that plays out. And, and many people have criticized Lord of the Rings for the exhaustive amount of endings. But I think it's important, especially if book fans out there in the Lord of the Rings and how the book ends, there's actually a, quite a bit of action that happens after the climax. That's all part of the falling action. Um, for those of you guys who know, who know, I, I hear you. I hear you. Loud and clear. Uh, okay, number two, falling action often contains a revelation. Okay, so resolution, that's reserved for finally answering all the questions, um, unless you're doing going for a cliffhanger. Um, but falling action, you're going to start to get revelations and things are going to become more clear after the climax. And the falling action holds potential for surprises. This kind of goes along with the same idea as Revelation. Now there's going to be new things that develop as a result. You know, in a way of simplifying it, the rising action signifies you getting to know the characters and how they think. And the falling action 
is now how are your characters behaving differently or how are your characters now developing as a result of being affected by the climax. So you get to know the characters in the rising action and you get to know them well enough that when you're examining them in the falling action, you're going, oh, they are doing things differently now. Okay, this is all about, this, is, this, this goes back to the potentials for surprise. People, folks, in real life, it is very difficult to change. Extremely difficult to change. The odds are stacked against you that you will ever change. But at the same time, change happens. And so even in real life, that is part of how the falling action expresses itself. People can be changed by an orienting story or a reorienting story in their life. Okay, uh, number four, falling action connects major story components. Okay, so once again, it's just helping make the structure more clear. Um, so if you go to the Sherlock Holmes stories, now once the big climax has been revealed, now then you can go back through the earlier devices of the story and then now make connection points. Um, let's see. Oh, shoot. What's his name? Edgar Wright um, is a film director well known for the rewatchability of his movies because you'll watch a movie and it will have all these elements and details and stuff like that. It, 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 it makes for a really good movie, but then there's usually some revelation point um, in the story and then you can actually rewatch the story, rewatch the movie with this sense and you're still getting enjoyment out of it. Um, I think he is known as a director who will tell you what's going to happen at the very beginning of the movie, but it doesn't quite click in there until you get to the end of the movie. Anyways, uh, <laughs> connecting major story components, bit of a side trail there, um, but there are some directors and film directors out there that are absolutely brilliant and masters of their craft and can tell really good stories by using these tools. Okay, five, falling action displays the aftermath. Okay, sometimes this is the aftermath of destruction. Sometimes it's the aftermath of new creation. And, you know, um, you, you can go exactly to the Disney's Lion King. As soon as the climax happened and the final battle ends, you see the desolate landscape burning and then a very well-timed rainstorm comes in and then it's like literally everything just gets restored instantly oh uh, beauty and the beast um at the end of the climax part of the falling action is that you see the restoration of all the um furniture elements back into their human form there's kind of a restoration elements in there this is all part of the falling action because it's showing how the story is going to be completed but yet there's still time to enjoy the story that you're already in. So bringing this into the Bible, where do we see this in the Bible? So the climax we have designated as the Gospels, all four Gospels. And then in the resolution, we have the book of Revelation. So what is left but the New Testament letters? And so this is where we're going to be exploring the following action by looking at the New Testament letters. So, um... Paul is our biggest instructor. Um, we have lots of authenticated letters by Paul, and but we also have some from John and Peter and some authors that we do not know. Um, so we're getting a variety of perspectives, and that's going to 
play a part into how we understand this. Um, real quick, one of the, the, the fun facts, if you look at your modern Bible, you will see that the letters are organized with Romans. Well, ooh, oh my goodness, wow. I totally forgot about Acts. Excuse me. Acts is also a part of the falling action as well. We cannot forget about that. Um, but what I was going to say, though, is that the letters in the New Testament, the reason why they are organized in your Bible the way they are, has to do with their length. They are literally organized from longest letter, Romans, to the shortest letter. That's the way they are arranged in their Bible, which I think is really interesting and curious. Sorry, that's a freebie right there. Um, so, okay, so let's get back into letters. So we have our authors. So we're going to have a multiplicity of perspectives in describing the falling action that are all connected together to the central climax. Um, and then when we get to the falling action, this also means that we are getting a change to our first audience. So when we are in the setting conflict and rising action and kind of into the climax, we were talking about a very distinct Jewish population because this was their story. This was their history. This is how they are connecting things and how they are orienting their world. And when we get to the falling action, we are seeing a uh, distinction now developing out of the Jewish culture into what's going to be known as the Christian culture. And it, it's important to realize that when we look back from our perspective, we can see the distinction between Judaism and Christianity pretty stark, you know. Um, but there was a time, and you can see this in the book of Acts, that it was not this fast separation. In fact, there, what we understand is that Christianity in its very earliest forms was still very Jewish because that's the primary people who were following the way of Jesus and then as more Gentiles and other people came to say, wow, there's something to the story. And then now this became a story not just for Jews, but a story for all the nations. Then you start to get that distinction. But even in the book of Acts, it says the early church, the first church, they were getting together. They were taking care of each other. They were eating and they were still going to the temple because that's where the scriptures were at the time. But even the early Christians were still playing part um, we're still playing a role in that kind of Jewish society. Uh, but there is going to be a distinction. Now it's not just a strictly Jewish thing. It now becomes something that all nations are participating in. And we need to pay attention to that because it's going to affect how we interpret scripture. So some things to keep in mind when you're looking at the letters. Uh, each letter has its own particular audience. So we already talked about how now the original first audience is, is kind of reshaping into a different form. Um, but even then, even now more specifically, each letter is written to a particular church, a particular people group, a particular community that is going to be distinct from other communities culturally, language-wise, um, the complications that they're dealing with, and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, number two, a, a letter was sent to a church where something typically was going wrong and needed correction. So what you are seeing is um, the letters as a troubleshooting manual. Hey, we've heard that you could have this going on. That's not helpful. It's not aligning with the climax and, and, and all that. This is how this needs to be corrected. 
which leads into number three. Because each letter has its own audience, and because each letter is addressing its own particular issue, it means you're going to find a variety, and sometimes you're going to find conflict and tension between the letters. And this is not because of contradictions in the text, but because Paul and the other writers of the letters are prioritizing the first audience over all other future audience. And so you're going to find these conflicts. So, for example, um, I believe it is in Corinthians when Paul says, if you cannot control yourself, uh, you know, get married. But ultimately, it's best if you don't marry. Okay, cool. And then you go into Titus where Paul is giving instructions. It says, hey, these widows right here, we need to get them married. So there's a conflict. What's the higher value, being single or being married? Well, there's two different audiences that Paul is addressing. So not a contradiction, not a conflict. It is Paul addressing two different audiences with two different issues going on. Uh, and so that, but you're going to see that, um, you know, what, for those of you guys who are a little more Calvinist in your background, the only time when faith alone is mentioned in the Bible is in the book of James, where it says not by faith alone, um, but by good works. And so there's that kind of tension that's going on here. So we are getting a resolution. We are getting connected points. But at the same time, folks, I, I cannot stand before you and say the Bible is simple. Um, the story is very deep and very complex. Um, and yet also lots of fun exploring. Uh, so we're going to be seeing this in the letters. So when we're looking at the following action, just always keep in mind the first audience, but always, always keep in mind the letters are very specific in who they're talking to. And, you know, the, there are some letters um, that are talked about as being circulated. Uh, so like Ephesians is a good example. Hebrews, um, Peter, these are all letters um, that were thought to be circulatory letters, which means that they would pass them on to other churches and, and stuff like that. Um, so we do have this idea of shared common letters, um, but at the same time, like Romans, Corinthians, Thessalonians, they were specifically written for that community, Galatians, etc., etc. So we're going to be seeing that. And so what is happening, though, is Paul and the other writers are describing what life looks like now, now that Jesus has done what he came to earth to do. And so it's going to be taking what we know in the rising action, and it's going to be comparing and contrasting. Is this still an important thing? Or do we do this? Is this more of a cultural distinction of the Jewish people? Or is this something that we continue on in the Christian faith that is made up of all nations? This is the... This is the discussion, this is the tension that's being worked out. In many ways, it's still being worked out today. And I take comfort in the fact that we are still talking about pretty big critical issues. If it was something as a matter of just solving it, then we could just stamp it and move on out and there would be no wrestling left. And I think that a lot of the Christian faith is built on this idea of working out your faith, um, not just so that everyone else is just getting the straight answers. But for every generation, there's going to have to be this wrestling with the falling action in the letters. So I want to ask the question, though, what is your character arc? You know, we've been spending our time talking about humanity and God as they are developing in the story arc of Scripture. 
But to you, dear listener, I also want to ask the question of yourself. What is your character arc and how is the story arc of scripture affecting that? What are you being called to in your own life? And it could be through multiple different ways. Let's talk about Marvel. Let's talk about Captain America, Iron Man, Thor. These three characters, and, and we're talking pre-Infinity War, um, still phase one through three, I believe, they each have their own distinct character arcs that plays out in their own trilogy of movies. You know, we've talked about Captain America in the climax. He does not have an arc. He is good from beginning to end, and the way the story can be told is that instead of him, the character, it's the world or the setting that has to go through the conflict and the chaos and and Captain America becomes the anchor point to bring that back into order. And then Iron Man and Thor, they also have their own individual unique character arcs. Um, Iron Man is going to be the classic character arc in that he is content and happy His world is in order, and then something happens which threatens his existence. It threatens his world, either figuratively or literally. And then the goal becomes he has to overcome that obstacle. And what happens in a traditional character arc is that in that overcoming, the person emerges from the conflict thoroughly changed, irreversibly changed. So, you know, in the context of Iron Man, he's literally building a new suit of armor that is more powerful and more capable. But, you know, his character, his growth as a person is also changing. So we don't want to just put it in perspective of upgrades and and becoming better, um, but more mature, more whole, more complete even. But that also applies to Thor in his own particular character arc of the cyclical arc. So you have Captain America, zero arc. You have Iron Man, traditional arc. And Thor, cyclical arc, which the beginning of Thor's movies, he's on top. He is in a successful position. He's in a prime position of dominance in whatever area he's in. And then the way the story proceeds is the conflict will send him down to the very bottom. And he experiences loss. He experiences anguish, turmoil, all that. And then the story revolves around him climbing back up the slopes that he has been cast down to ultimately bring him back to the top. And so there's a difference. In Iron Man... He is ascending to a higher level. In Thor, he's just trying to get back to where he was in the cyclical arc. And in the episodes of your life, you are going to be able to relate to all three of these character arcs at some point. But what I want to point out is that all three of these character arcs can be anchored into the story arc of Scripture. Okay? Is there an obstacle in your life that seems overwhelming? By anchoring yourself to the story arc of scripture, you can find a way to overcome it. Not to become a stronger, more powerful version of yourself, but to become a more whole, a more mature version of yourself. Let's look at the cyclical arc. The story arc of scripture is able to guide you out of the path of death to be able to climb back up to where you were always supposed to be. Really, that's a that's a huge one. 
We as humanity, we were supposed to be living with God. Go back to the setting of the story. And how our story is playing out is it's almost as if we are picking up at the bottom of the pit. We are climbing back up to be where we are supposed to be. Let's look at Captain America. Perhaps you are in a time of your life when things seem so chaotic and out of control that you need a strong anchor point to bring the world back into order. And that is where we find the story of Jesus. So once again, the character arcs and how they express themselves, they can be varied. They can do it in all different kinds of amazing creative ways. And for you in your own life, you are likely going to experience all different types. And they can all be resolved and anchored in the story arc of Scripture, which is, as we've talked about, it is an orienting story that is big enough and strong enough for not just you, but for anyone out there to take their own individual stories and anchor them into a bigger story. But let's talk about jazz. You guys know jazz, right? Let's talk about improv. Let's talk about spiritual improv. Okay, so N.T. Wright uh, is a well-known Bible teacher, and he has this really cool frame um, that he uses for describing where we find ourselves today. And he calls it the five-act play. And essentially, um, we have acts one, two, and three, and five of a play. But we're missing act four. And by studying acts one, two, and three, and by studying act five intensely and honoring the work that has already been done and knowing where it has to end, then we are able to figure out or improvise what act four would contain. Hmm, interesting. So this is where we get this idea of spiritual improv. And that, that, that may bring a strong reaction from you, but I do want to take a moment just to kind of pause for a second and kind of unpack that. When you look at improv or improvised comedy, as the long form is, if you're watching really good improv people, then you are not going to be under the impression that they are making it up as they go. Because there are rules that guide improv. And as any improv player worth their salt will tell you, the reason why improvised comedy succeeds is because everyone in the cast has said, these are the rules that are going to bind us together. And by following these rules, then allows us to creatively express something and still have make sense and still be enjoyable, and still avoids breaking down into a bunch of individual people trying to compete with one another to be the funniest or to have the biggest spotlight. You see how that works? It's not making things up for the sake of making things up, but it's honoring the rules and the foundation that has been set. And the same thing with jazz. Jazz is an art form well known for its improvisation, but a lot of that happens because each player within the ensemble knows the foundations extremely well. And because they all agree to work together, that's how it works. 
So, to go back to N.T. Wright's description of the five-act play, the story arc of Scripture that we have, that's Acts 1, 2, and 3, and then we have 5 and Revelation. So we know how it's going to end, and we have three acts of source material found in the setting, conflict, rising action, and climax of the Bible. And by following the falling action, by studying intensely what we have to us as the Bible, we can figure out what life can look like for us today. Meaning, there can still be mistakes and it's going to be okay. Because you're in the falling action, it does not mean that you are immune from still making mistakes. It just means that there's something different about you because the climax and you are working it out. You're trying to figure out what it now means. And so when we look at the Bible, which by the way, it probably should be stated, this is the reason why we pay attention to the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because if we are kind of participating in this spiritual improv, then this is when the guidance and foundation of the Bible and the guidance and foundation that the Holy Spirit brings is what is going to kind of give us extra layers of protection. But also as a reminder, the Bible was never supposed to be something that you encountered as an individual. And as a modern person, what I hope that we can reclaim is this idea of the Bible is a community event. Reading the Bible on your own, and I shouldn't say, you can get a lot out of reading the Bible alone. I, I do not want to come down hard or kind of like this, you should never read the Bible by yourself. I think as much as you read the Bible by yourself, wouldn't it be awesome if you also spent that much time with the Bible in community? Okay, because I say that because reading the Bible in community is a great um, safety device to keep you from having really crappy theology. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, you know, there is that. I, I fully believe that God speaks to people. But if a person goes off by themselves in a closet and writes a book and whatever and comes out and says, God and I had a conversation, I'm just saying I'm going to be a little suspicious. Um, whereas a person says, hey, I've been working with this group of people and we've been working it out and, and arguing and going back and forth. You know, uh, that will kind of give me a greater level of comfort, which goes back to why we began to read the story to begin with. When we look at our own individual story arcs, the one thing they have in common is that there is a bigger story happening. And maybe we can't see it. It doesn't mean it's not happening, though. But when we are able to observe the bigger story going on, the bigger story that what the Bible is talking about, then that provides an avenue for your story to have more meaning than you ever thought possible. Where is the story arc taking you? What are you learning? And how are you changing as a result of interacting with the story of the Bible? I think we're going to put a stop right there to it. Um, thank you so much for being a part of this series. I am looking beyond the horizon as to what we're going to do next. I have a few ideas, but I'm always open to suggestions. I want this to be a fun 
uh, variety show, if you will, allow me to say that. Um, because once again, the whole point is taking small bites out of the complexities of life, faith, and relationships. I have no interest or belief that I am able to solve all the problems. I will give an attempt, but I cannot guarantee results. Anyways, thank you guys for joining me today. I hope you have a wonderful day, and I will see you next time at the Elephant Feast. Peace!